I want to encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 23. For those of you who are first time here, or it's been a while since you've been here, we are in Exodus. We've been walking through the entire book of Exodus, not just little selected safe things. We've been walking through the entire book of Exodus and looking at the God who, the God who saves, the God who redeems his people. And now we're looking at the God who commands. And this is in this section, the last of last little mini series sermon in this mini series called The God Who Commands. And we're looking at Exodus 23 verses 19 through, or 10 through 19. As we read, remember, this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word that will never fail you, for it has never failed his people. Hear these words. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and that they may leave the beasts in the field beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. For six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all I have commanded to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the firstfruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. This is the word of the Lord. So it's a holiday weekend. It's, it's a weekend where we celebrate and we memorialize those who have served faithfully in our, our, our community, in our country, and we're thankful for that. It's also a weekend where Jake and Shauna are going to be celebrated. It's, a, it's almost a holiday for them. The whole family is in, all kinds of craziness, praying against rain. But it's a, it's a time for them to celebrate something huge. The word holiday, according to the Oxford Concise Dictionary, defines the word as a day of festivity or recreation when no work is done. An online dictionary provides another definition. It's a religious festive day or a holy day. In fact, historically speaking, the concept of a holy day is far more common than our con contemporary concept of a 
holiday. So as we look at what is God calling in light of that, the, our time and our space that we live in now, and what God was saying in this, in this section of Scripture, we've got to say, what is going on here? And as I was trying to figure out what, what is going on here, I thought maybe this is really supposed to be two different sermons. Verses 10 through 13, and kind of look at the, this. There's a Sabbath thing again that God is calling his, his people to observe the Sabbath again. And then you got 14 through 19 where he's saying, listen, I, on top of that, I want you to have three holy days, three festival weeks going on. But the reality is, is that they are all one great big Peace. They're connected to one another. So in obedience to the Sabbath command, as well as, as an obedience to all these festival things, what we see underlying here is that faith is the important and the critical element. Faith. Clearly, it would take a tremendous amount of faith for any of us to leave our homes totally for five to seven weeks. Unmanned. In fact, your whole neighborhood, your whole town for five to seven weeks is left abandoned so that you may go and worship God at one fixed time in one fixed place doing fixed activities. Your entire neighborhood is vacated. It takes a tremendous amount of faith. On top of those expectations for those religious holidays, there is this expectation that every week one day is set aside for the purpose of rest and worship. For some of us, it takes a lot of work to ob actually observe a Sabbath day, right? There's so much I've got to do. If I could just have one more hour, if I could have just one more day, I could get so much more done. But God says, no, set aside one day. To obey God would mean to trust God for all of his supply. And it was precisely Sabbath faith at which God was driving. Verse 13 kind of forms an important link. It demands exclusive worship of the one and the true God. And this was as necessary as the weekly Sabbath, as it was during the entire annual festivals. I want you to worship the one and true God. And the concept of exclusive worship brackets all these case laws. We heard at the beginning in the Ten Commandments, there are seven days, one of which is mine. And then we get at the end of these case laws, and God is saying, again, worship me. Without this religious or this theological conviction, the case laws would have been heartless and effectively meaningless. Israel and we are to nail this theology into our very fabric, our very lives. They were to fix it in their hearts and their minds that Yahweh, God alone, is and was to be worshipped exclusively. And this was the purpose of their sabbaticals, to both demonstrate and develop their faith in God on a week-in and week-out kind of basis. They were responsible to use these holy days to strengthen their relationship with the Lord. God's prescriptions would have been a means to turn their mere holidays into holy days, where they are drawn closer and closer to God himself. Biblical holy days are the means to guard our devotion from becoming detached from God. 
They're an opportunity for rest, for some rest from some responses, uh, responsibilities in order to pay greater attention to far more other important responsibilities. And that is trusting in the Lord. So for our purposes, I'm going to try as hard as I can to be brief. And if you know me, that's impossible. So we're going to divide this into four different sections, four different commands. And this is the first command, a command to celebrate. In verses 14 through 16, God gives a command to celebrate. Three times a year, you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread. You shall keep the feast of the harvest. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. It, it was to be a festive kind of worship. It was to be a holiday that was rooted in their, their exodus. For it was even in the exodus that God said, I want my people to go for the purpose of worshiping me in the desert. Let my people go. It was a celebration to the sovereign Lord. And in these three festivals, the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the Harvest, the Feast of the Ingathering, we see that these feasts were times of festivity, times of gladness, of joy. And I would suggest, honestly, that we need exactly the same today as we celebrate our sovereign Lord. The word feast literally means to celebrate. To celebrate. And the holy days were to be happy days. For example, let, let me uh, share the instruction for Deuteronomy from Deuteronomy chapter 14. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, your oil and the firstborn of your flock and herd, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But it doesn't stop there, because right there it sounds kind of ominous, right? And you shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice. Rejoice. You and your household. You're, you're to come together to celebrate, to worship the sovereign God who has saved you, and you are to rejoice. And so there, this text speaks of rejoicing and celebrating at these, these annual feasts. And there's three things that you can see even about this kind of celebration. They were fixed celebrations. God commanded that these take place three times during the course of a year. They were to be regular at a set time, and God had a divine calendar. Some of you are calendar junkies. And you live and breathe and die by the calendar, right? You know who I, I'm talking to, you know? It's a, that's me. I live and breathe and die by my calendar. And God does the same thing. But the beautiful thing about his fixed calendar is it gives us a story. A story. And ultimately, it began with him and it always ends with him. Alec Matir, one of my, my favorite commentators, said this, The book of the covenant circles around to its inclusion in the demanding order of life, in the seven-year cycle, the seven-day cycle, and the annual cycle. In this way, life is encompassed by spirituality. God comes first and last, 
as he comes to meet with us. And we go on to meet with him. Sunday, the Lord's Day, is a wonderfully God-centered, fixed day. It happens always on the first day of the week. One, a day on which Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And we celebrate that week in and week out. And it's for our good. It helps us to remember Christ is risen. And we should respond with a? How about he's risen indeed? (laughs) Christ is risen. He's All right. So there's this time that we need to be reminded. And it often requires a fixed time. A fixed celebration. And as believers, we must be sure that our time is regularly God-centered. But on top of it, this, there's a focused celebration that's going on. According to God himself, he says that these feasts were to be kept to me. They were to be kept to me. They were to remain entirely God-centered in their focus. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite dead guys, put his finger on the pulse of much of the contemporary worship of our day. And he wrote this. It is one thing to come to Christ's church, Christ's ministers, and Christ's ordinances. It's quite another to come to Christ himself. Happy, I love it, happy is the man who not only knows these things, but acts upon them. There's a danger of merely going through the motions of worship. These laws assumed an appointed place where this annual worship would be carried out. God knew that it would be quite possible for his people to go to the right place at the right time and do the right things without actually directing their worship to him. How often does that happen here with you? That you go to the right place most of you at the right time. And you do the right things. You'll, you'll sing the right songs. You'll offer the right offerings. And, but at the same time, you totally miss the appropriate focus. And so God says, your worship must be offered to me. But there's also, we see how we also celebrate our sovereign Lord by a faithful kind of celebration As we already noted, obedience to these commands required a tremendous amount of faith. To leave your home and to leave your land for seven weeks was no small task for anyone. But God gave them a promise of protection upon obedience. And you see that in Exodus chapter 34. God says this, For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So each time that you go up, if you go up in faith, being obedient to God's commands, God is saying, listen, I will protect your land. I'm calling you to myself. I will care for your land. Do you trust me? I'm the faithful sovereign Lord. Celebrate that. Worship me. So do you believe that God will be faithful to you? Do you trust him? Do you believe that God in his good promise will keep you and your family and your finances and your resources and your free to- that he will keep you as you live deliberately before the face of God? 
in your choices, even as you are here, do you trust him? As you set a day aside to worship him, do you trust him to say, you know what, I don't need to do that. He will care for me. He will care. If so, will you be found much with the church of God to enjoy him? So there's the celebration of the sovereign Lord, but there's also the celebration of the saving Lord. In verse 15, it gives instructions for the feast of the unleavened bread, and the commands are simple. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. This is also called the feast of the Passover, and this celebration was rooted in the the tenth plague upon Egypt at the Exodus. This feast focused in a special way on unleavened bread. Think saltines-ish. Unleavened, unraised bread. Leaven in itself is talked about all throughout Scripture. And leaven is neutral in itself. And the nature of growth that it causes must be determined by its context. Sometimes leaven throughout Scripture pictures growth of sin in our flesh, our desires, and there's an unhealthy growth that takes place. But it's also used of the influence of the gospel in a dark, dark world. So everyone was to appear before the Lord with an offering of unleavened bread. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You come with unleavened bread. They would bring an offering to God in gratitude for their salvation. And this reenactment served as an essential reminder to them that they were saved solely by God's grace. And therefore, they had a covenantal responsibility in return to give back. So the starting point for all celebrations must be God's salvation. Even your celebration this afternoon has got to start off with God's salvation. You can celebrate, only celebrate biblically if you have been saved by God's grace. Have you been? Have you been saved by grace? And just on a side technical note, we should note that this feast has been replaced under the new covenant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it indicates that the Lord's Supper has superseded the Passover as the Lord's feast for His church. The Lord's Supper is a congregational meal, one by which we are going to be celebrating in a little bit, which it's, when separated corporately by the church on a regular basis, it refreshes our focus and feeds our soul as we remember God's great deliverance. But we also see a celebration of a sustaining Lord. Verse 16 uh, commands the observance of the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labors by which you have sown in, in the field, and then the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit from your labors of the field. These, each of these feasts are a celebration of the Lord's grace, not only in saving them, but sustaining them throughout the year. So you have the Feast of the Harvest. The Feast of the Harvest was also called the Feast of the First Fruits, or simply Pentecost. This is Pentecost. 
began on a Sunday, the first day of the week, and it was really a combination of two feasts. It celebrated the close of the spring harvest. Pentecost is the celebration of God's providence in the past and of his promises in the future. It's a feast of anticipation. The picture of Pentecost was essentially that of Jesus Christ, and he was the first fruits of the dead, therefore anticipating a great harvest that is to come. Jesus was crucified at mid-afternoon during the preparations for the Passover, and he arose during the Feast of the First Roots. That's why the New Testament speaks of Jesus Christ having been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is our first fruits. And importantly, so we had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now we, leaven was included in the bread used at Pentecost. This leaven anticipated new growth. Holidays, holy days, Sundays are wonderful opportunities to rebuild faith and anticipation of what God will yet do, what he's going to do. And this is achieved by, by believers looking back on what God has done for them in the past and anticipating his faithfulness as we look into the future. Do you anticipate spiritual growth in your life? Anticipating. As you look back at his faithfulness, his sustaining hand, are you anticipating growth? But we also have the Feast of Ingathering. It's the third feast celebrated to be, uh, the third feast to be celebrated is the Feast of Ingathering, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This is my justification, Missio Day Church, for us going camping every year. Listen to why. This feast celebrated the completion of an agricultural year. It was a celebration of God's satisfying provision throughout the year. It was a feast of thanksgiving. It was a week of many, many sacrifices. In fact, up to 192 throughout the week. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But further, it was a time of corporate identification and re-identification with the original Exodus. Consider the Lord's instructions in Leviticus 23. You shall dwell in booths or tents for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Phil Riken, another one of my favorite commentators and pastors, says this. It, was, it says in the liturgies of the Jewish Passover this. In every generation, it is everyone's duty to look upon himself as if he had come out of Egypt. 
So by living in these temporary quarters, these these tents for a week-long festival, they would reenact part of the Exodus every year. Every year, fathers and grandfathers would take their entire family out, live in booths and say, remember, this is our heritage. And let me tell you the story of, of Moses and how he parted the seas. Let me tell you stories of how he fed you, how he cared for you, how the angel of death came over and struck down the firstborn of all. Let me tell you about that meal. Let me tell you about this. And they would be integrated into a storytelling community. Each new generation would enter into the Exodus experience. The Feast of Ingathering was a time to highlight covenantal continuity, a, a historical connection with the past generation. It was a time to highlight God's faithfulness in the past, both the recent, the recent harvest year and the distant exodus. It em- emphasized the truth that history is moving somewhere. That history is is linear. Our faith is credibly grounded in God's past work and can therefore credibly, we can credibly anticipate his blessings in the future. And that's exactly what Christian holidays are. Reminders of historical fact. We celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate the crucifixion. We celebrate the resurrection we must get into our heads and our hearts that we are part of something huge, something timeless, something that is bigger than just Jesus and me. Multitudes of saints, multitudes of saints have passed this way before us. I think of my grandfather, Fred, Laid him to rest about two years ago. Faithful, faithful, faithful man. I can still see his old Bible that was worn and tattered from its use. Many faithful saints have passed this way before and multiple generations will also follow. So a large part of our understanding, our heritage, of course, requires a healthy understanding of the the Old Testament. And the neglect of understanding the Old Testament really hurts the church today. We need to identify with those who lived in the past, for in fact, they are still, believe it or not, they're still alive today. On in glory, but still alive today. And the Lord's Supper and baptism really achieve that same purpose. To take part in these wonderful sacraments to the glory of God reminds us of God's ongoing faithfulness today, but also what He has done, and in baptism, what He is going to do. So we need to use these Christian sacraments and teach them to our children. Second major point. And then it's going to go faster. A command to congregate. Obedience was non-negotiable. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord. 
All who identified with the Lord were required to attend this feast. It wasn't a, hey, if you got time in your vacation schedule, and if your boss lets you off, attend. No, 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 no. Three times a year, you shall attend, and these are the dates. You shall be there. Gary North said, those who refuse to attend the required feast of God are in open rebellion against him. For they are declaring publicly that they are not under his jurisdiction and that they owe him no first fruits. A male resident who refused to attend the feast of the king of heaven came under the king's condemnation. One who did not, did not, lawfully, one did not lawfully turn down the king's invitation. When the king calls, you respond. And Deuteronomy 16 shows that the heads of the household, husbands and fathers, were responsible for their entire homes celebrating these holy days. God expected the entire family to join in in a celebration with great joy and great gladness as they remember God's faithfulness. They were to be there, and the husbands and the fathers were responsible to see that this expectation was met. You will show. You will be there. Such holiday, holiday, holy days would no doubt stir in the hearts of Israel for the Lord upon their return home. They, they just had this, this week of worshiping and enjoying Him. The, the corporate gatherings go a long way towards equipping them to live out God's law in their own home and in their communities. God's faith, we, we, we were with God. We were enjoying God. He goes with us. We've been equipped. Now let's go. They would be in a much better place to live out these case laws because they had just come from such a practical and intense reminder of the Lordship of Christ. Same is true about Sundays. Gathering on the Lord's Day, we should never vacate for vacation. We should always be found in the house of the Lord because it is there that He feeds us and He equips us, and therefore we can go home able to fulfill the law of the Lord. The command to consecrate is number three. We see that these sacrifices were to be carried out according to God's prescription, the way that he wants it. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of your first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil, yeah, this is going to be a fun one. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Kind of reminds me of how Jonah ends, those of you who've been through Jonah and knows God kind of ends with a, and all the cattle? What do you do with that? So, but God gives some very specific things about how there's a command to consecrate, to, to set apart certain things. Congregating is important, but that's not enough. Gathering is good, but that is not the most important thing. Worshipful participation and consecration, being set apart, was required. For worship to be acceptable, it has to be offered God's way. 
There was a consecrated kind of sacrifice. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. He, he says, listen, there's a certain way that, that I want you to even offer sacrifices. We, we can approach God and truly celebrate him when we come to him through the blood of the lamb. The leaven of sin must be removed. As Phil Riken says, it would not be right for God's people to present themselves to God no matter how regularly and then return to their old patterns of sin. They were called to put away all unrighteousness and this was symbolizing by, symbolized by making unleavened offerings. Take out the sin. Put to death, come alive. Put to death, come alive. It had a consuming sacrifice. Even the fat on the altar had to be consumed and, and taken off. It, it, it's got to be consumed. Even the best of the first fruits on the ground you shall bring, and it's going to be consumed. Only the best was good enough for the Lord. He got everything, the best of everything, and he would not accept any kind of other sacrifice. It had to be a calculated kind of sacrifice. God would only accept the first fruits. First fruits. He would not take whatever was left over at the end of the harvest. Deliberate planning and forethought had to always be put to the sacrifices that were brought before the Lord during these, these holy days. Think about it. And I would suggest that we ought to do the same in our offerings deliberate first fruits the best that we can offer the Lord God should be no mere afterthought he's no afterthought during our worship we should deliberately plan to bring to him our best there's also a real countercultural kind of sacrifice you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Okay, what, what, what are we saying here? One, it just sounds inhumane, doesn't it? A poor baby goat being boiled in its mother's milk. What is going on? Who would do that in the first place? I don't have the full time to examine the, the, the full meaning, but... We should note that God would not allow this kind of monstrous thing to happen in his sacrifices. But this was really, at the heart of it, was it was a countercultural kind of sacrifice because the, the pagans, the unbelievers in the land, would be boiling a baby goat in their mother's milk. And it was a common practice in their culture during the day. It was a fertility rite. And the Israelites were to approach God with hearts of faith alone. You trust in me. Don't do what they're doing. Even if it looks bleak. Don't you boil. Don't you do what the nations are doing. This is how I want you to worship me. Put your faith in me and me alone. Don't trust other gods. Don't go into these fertility cults. Trust me. These sacrifices testified to their, the faithfulness of God and to their trust in Him alone. And this made them peculiar. It made them different. It made them unique. And God wants our best. 
And as a result, he wants it from our trust. When we trust him, then our lives will be completely, totally different from the surrounding culture. So does our celebration of the Lord's Day even send, send that message out that we trust in the Lord? Will our celebration of Christian holidays, Christmas, Easter, How many chocolate bunnies do we have to consume before we understand that it's not about a bunny? Will your Christian celebration of your Christian holidays do the same? And let us be sure that the way that we celebrate holidays and the Lord's Day is deeply God-centered. Even Paul in Romans chapter 12 said, I appeal to you, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want you to be countercultural. Be renewed. Be new. Don't do it like them. Trust me. And here's the last one. There's a command to concentrate. Just concentrate. Fundamentally, these feasts held a, a dual purpose of helping God's people to practically appreciate His glorious work. Lord, look at this. I love this. Look at what you have done. And to help them anticipate an even greater work that He was yet to do through His Son, Jesus Christ. These feasts all pointed to Jesus. They were Christ-centered to the very core. Just as the Feast of Tabernacles was for the purpose of highlighting their satisfaction with the Lord of the harvest, so we are to find our complete satisfaction in the one to whom this points. Remember what Jesus said in John 7? If anyone thirsts, Anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's the one that we find our greatest satisfaction. Riken just captures the essence of these verses in John 7 where he says, and Exodus 23, when he says, Jesus is the source of our sanctification, the first fruits of our resurrection, the Lord of the harvest, the water of life, the sacrifice for our sins. This is the gospel according to Moses, as recorded in Exodus 23. This is the gospel in Exodus. It all points to Jesus. So the question we have got to ask every Sunday as we gather, do you know Christ? Have you seen that you deserve judgment that Christ bore through that Christ bore the penalty for you? Will you repent of your sins and partake of the, the Passover lamb, the perfect lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world? Today, today is the day of your salvation. 
do you believe? Because these feasts would help Israel to concentrate. These, these laws teach the same thing, to concentrate on Christ. The difference, of course, is that we have another feast. We have another feast that we can celebrate and concentrate on Christ, and that's the Lord's Supper. This regular feast helps us to concentrate on Christ and to reorient our lives as Christians. So let us learn from these feasts. They're not just random laws that are not applicable to us. Let us learn from these feasts to give ourselves to Christ completely. And only when we do so can real celebration begin. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, you are the one who satisfies us. You are the one who sustains us throughout our entire life. You have provided for the children of Israel in their exodus, through their time in the wilderness, to their entry into the promised land, and you are our God. You are the one that has taken us out of our bondage. You have saved us from Satan, sin, and death. And you sustain us through our journey in this life. And you carry us through, sustaining us, guiding us by your Spirit, feeding us with your Word. And ultimately, you will bring us, as we journey on, you will bring us to the promised land. Lord, we thank you that these feasts all point to Christ and they teach us to reorient our lives to you, to concentrate, concentrate on you, to worship you as brothers and sisters in Christ. So Lord, as we gather at your table, would you nourish us? Nourish us with your word, Nourish us with your spirit, your presence as we gather as brothers and sisters, the body of Christ here. Would we recognize all your promises and would you assure us by the eating and the drinking that you will care for your people in our salvation and our journey. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.